0: Welcome to the Dr. Lori Mars podcast, where she interviews experts in health and science, sharing their expertise so you can live your healthiest life.
1: This episode of the podcast is proudly sponsored by Fit Vegan Coaching, the world's leading whole food plant-based body recomposition program for Gen X and baby boomers. Founded by Maxime, whose personal journey began after losing his ex fiance to breast cancer. Fit Vegan Coaching is on a mission to disease-proof the world through the transformative power of plant-based eating and fitness. This program is a Rolls Royce of plant-based coaching, offering all-inclusive services, personalized plans, world-class accountability, lifelong support, and more. Say goodbye to the yo-yo dieting and embrace a lasting transformation that will rev up your metabolism even post-transformation. Ready to take charge of your health and vitality? Head over to fitvegan.ca, that's fitvegan.ca, and mention Dr. Lori for exclusive bonus savings when you sign up. Don't miss this opportunity to join the movement towards a healthier, fitter, and more vibrant you. Are you tired of compromising between convenience and healthy eating? Look no further. Introducing Whole Harvest, your ultimate solution for wholesome, plant-based meals. Whole Harvest is redefining the way you eat. Their meals are not only delicious, but also 100% Whole food, plant based without any compromise. Whole Harvest takes pride in their approach. There's no oils, no added sugars, and low sodium. Plus, they have SOS free menu items available. I recommend Whole Harvest to my patients. They need convenient and compliant meals that can be delivered to their home. At Whole Harvest, you can reimagine your favorite dishes with a plant based flair and enjoy menu items like the All American Burger harvest lasagna, and soba kimchi bowl. Whole Harvest Meals are chef-crafted and made with high-quality ingredients, delivered straight to your door. And guess what? They ship nationwide, so you can enjoy whole food, plant-based meals, no matter where you are. And here's an exclusive offer just for our podcast listeners. Use the discount code PLANTS30 to receive $30 off your first order. Visit wholeharvest.com and place your order today. Again, that's wholeharvest.com. Your journey to delicious whole food plant-based eating starts here. This episode of the podcast is proudly sponsored by The Healing Kitchen, your path to vibrant health. Immerse yourself in the transformative program guided by the combined expertise of myself, Dr. Lori Marbus and Chef Brittany Girudi, who has lost 70 pounds on a whole food plant-based diet. Here's what's in store for you. Virtual weekly sessions. Engage in an immersive 60-minute virtual session every single week, where you'll delve into the world of wholesome plant-based goodness right from your own kitchen. Cooking with Brittany the first half hour. Unleash your inner chef as you're captivated by Chef Brittany Gerrudi's culinary mastery that will delight your taste buds and nourish your body. Medical Q&A with Dr. Lori the last half hour. Prioritize your well-being during the second half hour. I will personally address your medical inquiries, providing evidence-based insights and personalized advice, empowering you to make informed choices for your health. So join us on the Healing Kitchen to help you step into a healthier and most vibrant future. So welcome to the podcast, and I'm excited to welcome back a good friend, Dr. Andy. Freeman. How are you?
0: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me as always.
1: Yes. And um, it's always fun to have a conversation with you, but this time I think we want to focus in on cholesterol and you're a cardiologist. You work in Denver. So if you guys need a good cardiologist, check him out, but uh, let's just kind of dive into the topic. Could you, can we talk about as far as cholesterol and heart disease risk, what do you look like or look like? Oh my heavens. What do you look for when you have a patient who comes in and let's say they're eating what they quote a standard American diet. So maybe we can focus in on what the plant-based diet does. And then where do you go as far as gauging if they need medication or not?
0: So uh, lots of loaded questions there. So first, what I would say is this, Um, it's important that people uh, not make assumptions based on diets. So I take care of Um, hardcore carnivores that I can never get to be plant-based that somehow have amazingly good cholesterol, like their numbers are so low, I can't believe it. And then I have people who are vegan and they're good or almost uh, zero in some cases, and sometimes they're really high. So, you know, cholesterol is a mixture of genetics, environment, um, life history, if you will, of how you've been eating, Uh, It's a whole variety of things. And so it's important that um, clinicians, even those that are plant-based, don't make pre sort of judgments, if you will, about cholesterol. Um, And there are some parts of cholesterol that add a lot of risk. For instance, you may know about lipoprotein A. Um, For the listeners that may not know, you might remember that show from some years ago uh, called The Biggest Loser. Uh, The trainer, the skinny guy, Bob, as you might remember, uh, was in his 40s. He had a massive heart attack and almost died. He was the trainer. Uh, from very high lipoprotein A. In fact, he became one of the spokespeople for the lipoprotein A uh, groups when they were active. Um, Nonetheless, uh, it's an important thing. And in fact, the European guidelines now recommend that everybody be screened for lipoprotein A if appropriate to do so. One in five people has this, and it's an independent risk factor, independent of all other risk factors. So it's one of those super important things to check. So what I would say is I get a lipid panel on everybody as a baseline, and I usually get what's called an advanced lipid panel that measures lipoprotein A and another one called ApoB. And you may know about ApoB, but if you don't, it turns out that ApoB and LDL are very closely related, but it turns out that ApoB actually is more predictive uh, than LDL, and so the European guidelines, which, and the Europeans, I should disclose, are always slightly ahead of us Americans, uh, tend to shift, are tending to shift towards um, looking at ApoB. So nonetheless, I usually get uh, the lipid panel. And then what do you do with that, right? So, and this is where there's some really emerging and, and neat things in the cardiovascular prevention space. So right now what we do is we take one's history. And if they have a history of a heart attack or a stroke or bypass surgery or an aneurysm or carotid disease or peripheral arterial disease or you know all these sort of cardiovascular disease risk equivalents, Um, they automatically are considered high-risk and they get a high-intensity statin per the guidelines. And if they are not, if they're diabetic, uh, they automatically get a statin, uh, but how intense it is depends on their cholesterol. And then for everybody else, we really calculate what their 10-year cardiovascular risk is, meaning what is one's personal risk of a heart attack or stroke or a cardiovascular event over the next 10 years based on large pooled cohorts of people. And so it's a population health tool. And then there's one other category, which is less common if your LDL is greater than 190, which is typically either people who eat incredibly poorly and are just prone to making cholesterol or having high cholesterol, uh, or there's a genetic predisposition to something like familial hypercholesterolemia. Those people automatically get a high-intensity statin. Now, there is some argument out there that this risk prediction tool is not perfect, and it certainly isn't because it's a population-whole tool, which is where there's some emerging technologies where people are recommending that they get some sort of plaque analysis based on cardiovascular CT scan. So you can directly see if there is disease or not in an individual, rather than treating this population whole. Um, and very interesting, that may be the paradigm shifter breaker of what we do now. Now, since this is a podcast all devoted to lifestyle medicine, people like myself, you might be, well, this guy's crazy. He's talking about putting on statins. So let me just put out there that statins are probably the most studied medication in the world. They've had more studies than probably anything else. Vegans do have heart attacks. I know I've said that out loud, but vegans do indeed have heart attacks. Vegans also get cancer and a variety of other things. Vegans also get hit by buses and all the other things that can happen to people in general. And you might say to me, well, that's great, but why don't we work on lifestyle? So the truth is lifestyle is foundation for everything we do. So whether you've had a cardiovascular event, a heart attack a stroke, whatever it is, or you haven't, lifestyle is always first. It's the top thing with the most likelihood of markedly reducing cardiovascular risk, period. Now, you might say, well, that's great. That's what I wanted to hear. Why are you telling me about statins? Well, the truth is we don't have any really good evidence that says that lifestyle is better than statins. We don't really have a good evidence that say statins are better than lifestyle. So if you look, they're likely synergistic. So if you said to me, doc, I've had a heart attack, I've had seven bypass surgeries, I went vegan, I've been event-free ever since, do I really need to work on my lifestyle and be on a statin? And I would say, yes, right now, that's the best evidence we have because we know that both lower risk and because you've had so many events, your risk is high and lowering your risk is a plus. So in a lot of ways, what we're doing is we're not making anyone bulletproof, I wish we could, we're not 100% eradicating coronary disease, although we probably are in some, Uh, We don't know without looking all the time with x-rays and other things. But what we are doing is we're putting odds in people's favor. And so what I always tell people is, if you don't want to take a statin, then let's have a discussion. I'll document that we had an educated discussion about the evidence behind it, and you choose what's best for you. And I also say to my patients, if you want to eat only bacon, I'll still be here for you. Chances are you'll be seeing me more than you might want. Um, But that said, I'm still here. And so what I usually tell people is at the end of the day, you have to decide what's best for you. And if you decide not to do one of these things and you're particularly high risk, you may be leaving money on the table, so to speak. So it's a loaded topic. It's controversial. Many of my plant-based colleagues would say that I'm crazy. But what I would tell you is I try to apply the best of evidence-based medicine, which includes all the best of lifestyle medicine, which I am a fervent, fervent believer in as the best primary prevention, meaning that for people that have not had a cardiovascular event, and then if you have had a cardiovascular event or you're very, very high risk because of diabetes or smoking or whatever it may be, being on a statin may make sense. So that's my public service announcement, uh, just throwing out all of that. So I hope that was useful.
1: Very. I think that's really, really important. Could you describe the difference between APOB and LP a and LDL just to kind of understand like what those are exactly. So when people hear yeah. that term, they actually know what that is.
0: Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, I would say that our concepts and paradigms have shifted so many times that I'm not even sure we exactly know. Um, and what I would tell you is, I would say that cholesterol is a surrogate for something we don't exactly know how to measure. So it's pretty good and it's highly associated, but it's not a my cholesterol is this and therefore my risk is exactly this. It's it's kind of a fuzzy area. So typically, and I'll put it in the way that most people would understand LDL, which is the lower density Uh, cholesterol is the more likely to be atherogenic, meaning it can lead to atherosclerosis. It's the bad cholesterol. HDL is considered the, quote, good cholesterol. And we used to think that if your HDL was through the roof, you'd live forever. And it turns out that might not be exactly the case. And it turns out there may be too much of a good thing, too. HDL is the high-density cholesterol, uh, which is more likely to clear some of the bad cholesterol particles. So there's LDL, there's HDL. There's another one called triglycerides, which are um, sort of blood fats, if you will. Um, it's not uncommon, particularly for vegans, to have higher triglycerides than usual. Just FYI, for those of you that are taking care of plant based people, uh, especially if they're eating more carbs, especially white or simple carbs, triglycerides might form in some people more avidly. You know, I'll tell you a great story I've been taking care of. Uh, A Japanese guy who moved to the United States recently, when I saw him, his first triglycerides were 800. So I made him fast and come back and I'm like, oh, those are high. Let's work on this. So he came back, he fasted 600 while he was eating white rice four times a day. So I told him that he needed to switch to brown rice of which he really frowned at me and you know told me all the cultural implications about how you know if you eat brown rice you might be considered a peasant and all these awful things I said look I get it but I'd rather you not have a layer of cream in your blood whenever you come to see me and the truth is, if you have somebody who has significant hypertriglyceridemia and you spin out their blood, there is literally a layer of cream at the top of the tube. It's pretty gross. Anyway, he switched to brown rice and his cholesterol, his triglycerides became normal. Uh, he was most unhappy with me, but that said, he's still alive. So big plus. Now, the issue with triglycerides, of course, is if it gets very, very high, not only does it can it create um, you know, this big layer of cream in the blood, but it also can lead to a condition known as pancreatitis, which is just pure, miserable abdominal pain and often nausea and vomiting, it's just awful. So there's that. And then there's other particles we're slowly learning how to figure out are in there and they're all sort of linked and I don't claim to be expert in all the different particles and how they all go together but ApoB and LDL are connected. And so ApoB is just measuring a different aspect of LDL. Lipoprotein A is its own sort of independent thing. They all have different functions. Um, I would refer you to somebody who's a you know, bench lipidologist if you want all the basic, all the stuff there. But here's the interesting thing about lipoprotein A. So it is independently associated with early cardiovascular risk with an, namely coronary events and aortic valve degradation, interestingly enough, so aortic stenosis. And there is a domain in the protein of lipoprotein A that is akin or similar to one of the blood clotting factors. So if you look, what do you do if you have high lipoprotein A? And the assay that we typically use, anything over 75 is considered too high, and anything over 200 is considered probably the threshold for treatment. And for the first time in history, coming out next year, there'll be a drug that targets lipoprotein A if all goes the way it's supposed to, which is amazing. Um, But right now there is no consensus or evidence-based approach to lower lipoprotein A that with good outcomes. So what can you do? Well, there are people out there who do lipid aphoresis, which is a fancy dialysis to lower lipoprotein A. Uh, some people will go on a PCSK9 inhibitor. Many people know this drug is Repatha or Preluent. Um, that lowers lipoprotein A to a small degree, but we don't know if it improves outcomes. Um, and believe it or not, the vast majority of us are putting people on statins and a baby aspirin when they have high lipoprotein A. And statins lower cardiovascular risk. Interestingly, they may raise the lipoprotein A by a few points, which is not uncommon to see. I'll also throw out there for those of you that are hardcore prevention body hacker types, that if you go on a statin after you have a coronary artery calcium score, it's not uncommon to see the score go up. And the reason for that is that statins typically will calcify or stabilize plaque. And we know now that calcified plaque is less risky than the non-calcified plaque. Um, So it's a marker of chronicity and stability, uh, which I know sounds counterintuitive, but FYI, if you do go for another calcium scan, um, that may change. So bottom line is a big primer on prevention, what I do very all the time and, and rapidly. And I would tell you that as the evidence changes and we learn more about how all these things work together, it, ser- it sometimes seems like we don't exactly know how all of these things work together, but we're slowly learning how each of them aff- affects risk. And I would tell you that again, even if you have you know an, an amazing cholesterol, and I take care of people who have a zero calcium score, a super duper low um, LDL, um, And they still have very high lipoprotein A, and they're still at risk. And we have an educated discussion with those people about whether it makes sense to be on a statin or an aspirin. We're in a gray zone. I don't think anyone really knows, but there are certainly more and more people, as I start screening more, that have surprisingly high lipoprotein A's. You then delve deeper into their family history, and you learn about some distant relatives and sometimes very close relatives who have died very early from heart disease. And now you know why. Uh, So it's really interesting. So the more we learn, uh, the more excited I get about keeping people out of harm's way. Uh, But even if you're 100% vegan, you never touch a drop of fat in your life, your lipoprotein A can still be hot and it's 90% genetic. So.
1: And so with the LP little a, at least from what we do know now, is that mean that even if your LDL factors are low, like it's operating in a different mechanism, do you feel like it's the clotting? Aspect of it that's increasing the risk of the
0: heart no, attack? Nobody, yeah, nobody knows. People call it this sort of spectrum where some people get like plaque and it calcifies, and some people have high level protein A. And it may be that there's different, you know, ends and we have to the more we learn, you know, because there's this concept of residual risk, right? Mm-hmm. So you yes, have someone has a heart attack, you get their cholesterol to nearly zero, you change their lifestyle, and yet some of these people still have more cardiovascular events. So what is driving that risk? It's something else um so anyway the more we know the the less I feel like we know but it's it's interesting so
1: yeah there's a lot of that going on especially in nutritional science um okay so someone comes into you they're eating a very low anti-inflammatory diet um plant-based I I know I hear you when you said yeah there's carnivores and diet and whatever but we've all seen cholesterol drop with you know, in many people eating and transitioning to plant-based diet, but the LDL doesn't get lower. How do you determine, like, when someone be on a stat when they are incorporating all the lifestyle factors? Like, what are the numbers that people like numbers <laughs> that yes. can look at and say, maybe this is a discussion worth having with someone who's educated about these risk factors?
0: Totally. So, great question, right? So, first, I should just say, for full disclosure the vast majority of people that are carnivore or eating the standard American diet. When they change to a plant-based diet, their cholesterol drops by huge magnitude, like 30 to 50. Sometimes I see one guy 70% drop. It's amazing. Remember that when we are born, our LDL is like in the thirties, right? And yet we're babies and functioning and doing all the things we need to do. And it turns out there's probably no LDL that's too low. So there was only one study or maybe two that showed That if you can get your LDL to like that undetectable range with PCSK9 inhibitors, you might have a slightly higher risk for cataracts. I'd rather a cataract than a heart attack, but, um, you know, even that hasn't been repeated. So food for thought. So the question is, let's say you're, you know, you go from a standard American diet, you go to a a low-fat, whole food, plant-based diet, your cholesterol comes down, you feel better, you lose weight, your fitness level goes up, your blood pressure is doing well. When do you get a statin if you do? Well, first, if that person happens to have a cardiovascular event, they should get a statin. Second is we, again, can calculate their risk and figure out whether it makes sense. Now, there are some ways out of that. So first, let me give you the risk thresholds. So if your risk is between 5 and 7.5% over the next 10 years of a cardiovascular event, you should consider a statin. At 7.5%, we recommend a statin up till 20%, usually the moderate intensity statin. And then after 20%, meaning you have a one in five chance over the next five years, we recommend a high intensity statin. Again, this is based on a population whole study and it's calculated based on your age, gender, risk, et cetera. As Kim Williams will often say, you know, as we get older, we're all more likely to die. Most of us from heart disease, I just don't want it to be my fault. And he's true and that's that's spot on. And that's also what the risk, uh, the major risk in this calculator is age. For most men by the time they hit 70 they're already at moderate intensity and um for most women it's usually around 73 when they cross that threshold um just fyi so there's that and then uh if you wanted to you could certainly get a calcium score at any point in there and if your calcium score is zero you could make an argument that you don't need to be on a statin and then more exciting here in denver is a brand new company called clearly you may have heard of them uh, they do cat. They take a cardiac CT scan. You send it to them. They do a plaque analysis. So they tell you how much calcified, non-calcified plaque there is, and then they're helping to stage coronary disease for the first time ever. And it may sound weird, but of all the diseases out there the, with prevalences as high as they are, we don't stage coronary disease. Like when was the last time you said, "Oh, I have stage zero or stage one"? Never. Um, everything else is staged. Cancer, fatty liver. I mean, you ne- everything's got a stage except for coronary disease. So clearly is trying to change that. And then based on that um, stage, you know, we would intensify regimens with both lifestyle and medications, and then repeat after, you know, two, three, five years, depending on how severe you are to see if you've sort of cooled off or if you're progressing. And then we would literally keep throwing the kitchen sink at you. Um, and there are some people out there who have you know, we we all know people out there who have smoked a carton of cigarettes a day, who could drink out of the fryer and they live to be 109. How is that possible? They're just very lucky. The truth is though, most of us don't know where that person until we get there. So when you live this way, it's a hedge against whatever genes and environment you've been exposed to. So just being a realist.
1: Okay. And then when the, they go to staging the heart disease, that's really interesting what are the factors but is it just the attack score that they're looking at or it's actually the plaque factors? atheroma
0: volume yeah it's the oh, amount okay. of plaque you have which makes okay. sense um okay. and then you know at some point we'll start getting fancy where they they stage it and then you can put the various you know how there's like a tnm classification for cancer you'll get all yeah. these things like if you have calcified non-calcified etc cetera, etc so huh. it'll be really interesting but it's it's paradigm breaking in a lot of ways and at some point this goes the way which i hope it will this could literally be the way we do all sorts of coronary disease where when you come in for a chest pain rule out you get a cardiac ct scan with a like a plaque analysis Mm -hmm. and we know right then and there do you have disease and what are we doing about it like it's you know it seems crazy to say that in this day and age we do all these indirect measures to figure out if someone has coronary disease when we actually have the ability to look directly at it so really exciting stuff coming down the pike that will probably massively change the way we practice, which I'm very excited about. But as you know, everything in medicine takes time to catch on. And, you know, the old guard sometimes gets real angry when we try to break their toys that have been around for 50 years. So it'll be very interesting to see how it all works out, but I'm excited for it.
1: Yeah. So when you're, so is there going to be a place for like CT angiography or is it just the coronary calcium? No, so this is
0: all based on CT angiography. So remember, a okay. calcium score is a like a quick zoop, snapshot. We yeah. just get is there calcium, is there not? Right. Remember, calcium is a metal, so it shows up on X-rays. So it is a it's a snapshot. Uh, a plaque analysis requires a CT angiogram, right? So you get a little dye. We take pictures. We usually slow down one's heart with a like a beta blocker medicine, so we get good pictures, and then we have the ability using artificial intelligence, machine learning. Um, to process these images in a way that gives us a very consistent product that tells us how much plaque there is. So it's like taking the very early stuff that Dr. Agatston used to do, the calcium score, which is where that came from, the whole South Beach type thing to an unbelievably sophisticated level. It's really exciting
1: stuff. Yeah. That's really cool. And they're, they're in Denver with you.
0: They are. Yes, they are. They're in Denver and very, very smart people behind it. I'm pleased to say that one of the smartest people I know in cardiology, a guy named James Min or Jim Min um, is their CEO and he is truly brilliant. So,
1: Awesome. Very cool. All right. So now that we have in the calculator, could you speak to where people can find that and they can go in and actually put their own information in?
0: So for my more savvy patients, because this is a little technical, I usually recommend that they download the app that lets them calculate it. It comes from the American College of Cardiology. It's called the ASCVD, Atherosclerotic Cardiovascular Disease Risk Estimator Plus, and it will give you the ability to calculate your risk. And then you can play with things and see where your risk might go. And then it even gives you resources about how to deal with some of these issues, which is exciting um that said um nothing's going to work better than than lifestyle and especially your one's diet so
1: and i knew you know if it's asking for let's say if you're hypertensive or you're diabetic let's say someone has gone through the lifestyle changes and actually had some remission of the high blood pressure they're now normal intensive and their blood sugars are normalized do they still put in that they are quote-unquote diabetic because of their history or do you put them in as a non-diabetic?
0: I put them in where they are now.
1: Okay, very yeah. good. So
0: if, someone, if someone's blood pressure when I first calculated their risk was 150 and now it's 110, that's what I put in. If okay. someone's A1C was seven when I first met them and now it's five, I put in five where I choose no on the diabetes. Gotcha. Um, you know, if someone smoked and now they don't smoke, I choose no on the smoker.
1: Cool. And um, we do get a lot of questions also regarding inflammation markers and what inflammation markers someone should be measuring with their cholesterol panel. How do you act on those? <laughs> are they worth, you know, actually even checking? Because um, there is some discussion amongst the plant based other doctors that, oh, even if your LDL is high, you just need to worry about inflammation markers. Like, so I'm curious what your thoughts and opinions are on that.
0: Yeah. So actually in the guidelines, they would call many of these markers risk enhancing factors, uh, which help to sort of push you towards more intense treatment. And those include things like lipoprotein A as as a for instance. Um, But actually the the major one that we really check is high sensitivity C-reactive protein or just C-reactive protein if you don't have access to the high sensitivity one. All that really is, is a measure of total body inflammation and it's not perfect. Um, So it's another thing saying, You have lots of low-grade inflammation. What a lot of people don't realize is, you know, metabolic disease, right? Cardiometabolic disease, cardiometabolic renal disease, you may hear people talk about is a low-grade inflammatory condition, right? The root cause for all disease, coronary disease, kidney disease, whatever, it's all inflammation. And some of these markers will say, yeah, this person's more inflamed than we would expect, and we probably should do something about it to lower their risk. So, I almost always will get a a C-reactive protein on my patients when I do blood work, um, as well as this advanced lipid panel, excuse me. Um, And that's because it's just a powerful way of sort of putting together one's sort of composite, if you will, of where their risk might be. And so typically C-reactive protein is what I get. If it's high, it's more weight to say, we got to work harder on uninflaming you and putting you maybe on a statin sooner. And so I know a lot of people don't like to hear that, but, you know, if your body's showing us that you're inflamed, then remember, you know, if you have an acute infection, you get COVID, your C-reactive protein is going to be high. But assuming that you are in your usual state, if it's high, then there's something else going on.
1: And what do you consider high? Because there will be different, you know, is is anything over 1%? If you're in that moderate, is it over three? Like, what do you consider elevated?
0: Anything. You know, we have some that are. You know, if it's zero point four or higher, it's considered high. So you have to use the assay you have. But if anything's mm-hmm. higher than normal, and I remember normal's a bell curve, so it's a little bit of a loaded normal, if you will. Um, but if you're, you know, if you're zero point three nine and your assay is normal is zero point four, you could argue that's moderate, mildly high. Right. The nice thing is when you check it and it's undetectable or it's, you know, 0.0, whatever, really, really low. So I would say again, it's not like there's a an exact threshold where I'm like, oh, we got to do this. But if it's high, I'm going to be like, ooh, this is really high. We got to do something about it. And that's where some of the newer medicines that work in the cardiometabolic renal space and the diabetes space that are now showing cardiovascular outcomes can really be helpful. So things like SGLT2s. Uh, things like you know your Wegovy's and Ozempics and all that that everyone's excited about. Yes, they help people lose weight, but they also help to cut inflammation, cardiovascular disease risk, weight. So they have all these additive things. Um, but again, I'm not a big fan of throwing drugs at people until they really have put their effort behind their lifestyle.
1: Mm. So, do you think the WGOBIs and the GLP1 agonist stuff is related because they are cutting the weight and that's decreasing the total inflammation and improving cardiac? It'll risk be, imp- do you think yeah, it's you asked,
0: We have all these same conversations. That's so funny. There's not an easy way to untangle this, right? Mm. So, if someone's weight goes down and their blood pressure goes down and their diabetes gets better because they have less adiposity and less insulin resistance, which is the one that that's the, they're all good, right? Those are all good right. things. You know, but the question is, is, does it make sense to be on a drug for the next, um, you know, 30 years in one's life, uh, 40 years in one's life or more at a cost of 30,000, 40,000, $50,000 a year, you know, and so that's where I'm a little bit upset. You may have seen, I I was talking to one of the reporters recently, and they quoted me on this, but I said, you know, I don't think it's a a genuine thing to say to a patient, hey, you're overweight, here's a medicine, good luck, and you pay for it for the rest of your life. Rather, I think it's time to use that as a running start, right? So if you have a patient who has all these metabolic diseases and they say, I've tried some stuff, I'm really not good. I said, okay, and you really want to be on this medicine? Great, you qualify. I'd love to cut your risk, but I want you to use it as a running start. So I want to set up front for you that my goal is for you to be on this for a year or less. And the running start means... You change your lifestyle markedly. You change your diet. You switch to a plant-based, low-fat, whole-food diet. You boost your exercise. You work on stress. You sleep enough. You get your sleep apnea treated if you have it. And you work on connectedness with others. And for those people, I think that makes sense, especially if they've tried other things. But I am not a big fan of, oh, you're overweight. Here you go. See you later, which is happening Mm -hmm. all over the country. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, It's a really interesting conversation. And um one other question kind of getting back to the inflammation. So let's say someone has a good cholesterol, right? It's low, LDL is under 70 or under a hundred, PAC score is zero, but their inflammatory markers kind of just tip in, you know, above low. Um, Cause with the assays that I see, it's like less than one is optimal. One to three is this moderate risk and above three is high risk. So if they hit like 1.5 or two, what do you do with those? Cause you know, they're feeling okay. There's not infection. There's no autoimmune disease. Um, maybe they're exercising inflammation just from that or something like that. But curious, what, what do you do with those people because they get a lot of questions if their inflammatory markers are bumped up and they like, I feel okay.
0: Yeah. You brought up a really good point. I actually will typically screen these people for autoimmune disease. So, you know, you get their ANAs and SCLs and all these antibodies and see what's brewing. Some of these people have low-level autoimmune disease that's not clinically meaningful. Some of these people have thyroid disease. Um, some of these people, this is interesting. I've seen a handful of people that I would call unbelievable overachievers when it comes to lifestyle. And they exercise so hard that they end up with a CK elevation, like their muscle breakdown. Yeah. And their CRP is, too, is a little high. So uh, it's not a common scenario. I mean, I don't know if it's been written about in any large way before, but so for some people, you know, and we were talking a little bit about this before we started recording is some people get almost to like a, like a crazy level about making lifestyle changes, right? Like if you happen to eat a piece of food, unless you have an allergy that was once on a cutting board from some egg product five years ago. Are you going to get some egg particle in your system? You might, and if you're allergic, that's bad news. But if you're not allergic, you know it's it's not going to get you, right? I mean, these things happen, right? I mean, if you look at the amount of insect parts we all breathe in, and you know all these things that happen, the more you know, the less you want to live in in the world we live in. But um, so, I guess what I would say is, the goal is to do your best to to live in a way that is not stressing you out. I have some patients who when I tell them they have high blood pressure and it's a major risk factor, will literally measure their blood pressure 25 times a day and send me them all on the portal in the EMR. And I don't want that. I don't want them to do that. I don't want that as I appreciate the effort, but it is not what I want. I want you to measure your blood pressure if it's high a few times a day, randomly see where you live. And if the average blood pressure is staying over 130, give me a call and I'll take care of it. I don't yeah. need to know every breath you have, every bowel movement you have. I, you know, So some people are really, it's just over the top. And the truth is you can go to many of these functional medicine places, cardiovascular risk, risk reduction places, and they will measure all sorts of things that are really neat and cutting edge that we don't have enough evidence to draw a conclusion on. So mm-hmm. I have people who come in and they tell me about all their different Omega profiles and their their different species of bacteria in their in their mouth and their saliva in their in their stool. People are sending all sorts of excrement things in the mail. I mean, it's just really it's a lot, and um, I appreciate the effort, but I would say that there's just not a lot of evidence. Even some of the things that are on the more common Berkeley Heart Panel, Boston Heart Panel, they're really amazing panels, but it's difficult to know what to do with some of the outcomes and with some of the data. Right. So if you have some predilection genetically towards, you know, increased cardiovascular risk, what are you going to do? Well, we're going to work on lifestyle. We might put you on a statin, you know, in appropriate cases. you might be on an aspirin. And then what? Right. And there's not there's not like a magic bullet for all the different things we know how to measure. So,
1: mm, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll get patients who have gone to a functional medicine doctor or somewhere in order to all these labs. And I'm like, I don't even know. What these are, there's yeah. certainly no standardized you right. know, description of what to use these for. It's like, I'm sorry, to waste your money. At least for me, these aren't fruitful. I'm just, you know, like you said, evidence-based, working on with what we know will um, actually achieve some outcome or move you towards an outcome that we're looking for. But two questions, two more questions um, that I think are super pertinent is omega-3s and do you recommend supplementing with like the alpha oils and things like that because i know you know if we measure it again there's no rda on these like in conversion so what are your thoughts on the omegas
0: yeah so i think you know if you're a plant-based eater you might be naturally lower in omegas and as you may know if you eat walnuts and Uh, flax seed in their ground and you, you know, your body's ability to convert the ALA into the DHA, EPA, all these other things is less efficient it's not zero. Um, And of course, where does fish get their fish oil from, right? Of course, they get it from algae. So you could eat lots and lots of algae, uh, which is actually an interesting food source that may be very sustainable and and quite good. But side note there. Um, So I don't really know when people get all these different profiles, if they're deficient in X or Y or Z, if it makes sense to supplement, because we don't have enough evidence about what to do. There are a few interesting uh, caveats to that, though. So there are some people who have very high triglycerides that respond very readily to prescription, not over-the-counter, but prescription fish oils. And the whole concept of fish oil is super strange anyway, right, you take a big pile of fish and squish it down and put all their oils in a capsule. I don't know who came up with this, it's very interesting. there's lots of very interesting, um, you know, Eastern medicine that uh, does similar things with some animal pride products. There was actually one in, uh, I was reading about the other day that's for angina that includes like cicada shells and all these things. So anyway, and it actually works. There's real evidence for it, but um, you know, at the same point, there are other ways to, to take care of things. So I guess what I would say is um, first, you know, there are certainly multivitamins that are designed specifically for plant based eaters that include things like B12, and some of the algal-based fish oils, the DHA EPA, that you would might be deficient in. Um, There is some evidence that if it's too low, some people would say there's some linkages to depression and other things. There's not enough enough compelling evidence to know exactly what to do there. So I say to people, if you're comfortable, eat a few walnuts, um, eat some ground flaxseed in your oatmeal if you're up for it. Um, If you wanna take an algal oil supplement or one of these um, plant-based multivitamins, feel free. Um, but I don't know if we have a very compelling, you must or must not do X, Y, or Z in this space. I don't know if you say anything different, Lori, so.
1: No, um, you know, I I think of it as like a small amount, it's maybe an insurance policy because they're about brain health and different things. But there is some interesting patients I've worked with that autoimmune disease, maybe they have rheumatoid arthritis or joint discomfort and some um, algae omega-3s help. So there is an anti-inflammatory component to it, so that for what it's worth for a different reason but um, they can be helpful in some cases Um, and then final question is about oils Um, it's a constant question constant question in the plant-based world what are your thoughts on oils yay nay sometimes maybe which ones
0: (laughs) okay So this is a loaded topic. It's quite controversial. Um, So if you talk to my pal Esselstyn, he'll tell you no oil ever. If you press him harder, he'll tell you you could have three walnut halves in a day. Look, there is a controversy about this because in bench research, if you give somebody oil or if you give endothelial cells oil, they tend to become dysfunctional. That's where this comes from. So there is real evidence to show that. And you know from some of the work from... um, uh, some of the docs that were actually here in Colorado for a while um, that if you eat like a cheeseburger, your endothelial cells will shut down by measures of uh, endothelial cell function. So there is some real evidence there. That said, you know, oil is a weird thing in general, right? With the exception of the olive, which you can take with your fingers and just squeeze, and oil comes out. Um, Everything else requires high heat and high pressure for these little teeny tiny seeds. Like, have you ever seen a canola seed? I mean, they're like almost invisible, especially if your vision isn't perfect. Um, And then you press those out. And then when your body gets those oils in, it doesn't quite know what to do with that incredible richness. And so it makes triglycerides and it may get inflamed. And so for my patients who are at very high risk, I'll often counsel them. I tell all my patients to be low fat. But for my patients who are very high risk, who have had repeated events, I'll often tell them to be almost no fat, as low as they're willing to go. And that's hard. It's hard for a lot of people. Now there is evidence behind canola, olive, sunflower, safflower oils, and cardiovascular benefit. Some of that is loaded, right? So if you look at the Mediterranean diet study where people were drinking like a liter of olive oil a day or something crazy, it was a lot. Um, The benefit was more for brain and stroke reduction than it was for cardiovascular, but lumped together, they were all quote beneficial. So what do you make of all that? So I tell people when you can avoid oil, right? So you don't need to cook everything in oil. You don't have to douse every green vegetable in oil. If you go out for dinner and you go to an Italian restaurant, as much as they like, uh, you know, they make good pasta, you don't have to douse it in oil. So tell people no oil, right? Pasta doesn't need oil. to taste good. You could probably eat it raw and it still tastes good. Uh, And the same, if you're cooking, you can use a splash of oil. You can spray oil. You can use veggie broth. You can use an air fryer and skip the oil. Um, It's still good. Does popcorn taste better with oil or or butter? Yes. Does it taste good dry? Yes. Just maybe not as good. So you have to kind of really weigh everything carefully together and then do your best to be lower fat. Now, I do want to put out there, there's an important caveat about tropical oils like palm and coconut. They sure make a lot of the vegan products out there taste delicious and decadent, but they are not good for your heart. And if you look, we used to, years ago, not me, but my predecessors many years before me, would study uh, atherosclerosis by feeding rats their body weight in coconut oil, and they would all have heart attacks. Um, Coconut oil is probably good topically, although I've definitely heard of one patient tell me that when they were rubbing coconut oil on their skin, their cholesterol went up. I don't know exactly how that worked, but it can happen, I guess. Uh, And the other thing I'll tell you, if you live in a cool climate and you're washing or or bathing with coconut oil uh, type products and they hit cold pipes, it can congeal and create a whole plumbing problem. So there's certainly that issue there. Um, So that said, avoid uh, tropical oils if you can. Uh, Palm oil, as you may know, is controversial for so many reasons, including the way it's harvested and what it does uh, uh, to the environment around these areas. Um, So I guess what I would say is a long loaded way of saying do your best to reduce oil to whatever you're comfortable with and if you're very high risk consider going down to near zero, if not zero. And the same is true for nuts, you know nuts avocados there's evidence that actually they improve cholesterol, they improve cardiovascular risk, they have other benefits. Um, The issue is it's very easy to just overdose right a lot of people will call nuts the gateway drug right you have this, and then before long you have nut butter this and cashew butter cheese and blah 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 And before long every day is loaded with nuts, Um, they should be a garnish and ideally you should buy them with the shell so it is hard to eat a lot of them. you know, I, I would say the worst thing, my weakness is pistachio nuts. And, and the worst thing that ever been has been invented, at least in my book, are shelled pistachio nuts because you can eat the whole handful in two seconds rather than having to crack everyone open one by one. So lo- loaded answer. And then be careful, of course, all of these things are highly caloric, right? So a tablespoon of oil can have a lot of calories in it where you could eat literally a whole salad with no dressing for the same amount of calories. So food for thought.
1: Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So yeah, I I get that question a lot and I kind of dance around it the same way because I'm telling people, well, if this many calories is replacing some healthy food and you need to lose weight, you need to do this, why consume the oil to begin with? So even if there's evidence saying that it could be helpful. (laughs) Oh yes, It's, it's, it's really interesting, all the interesting debates. So. But I did wanna say thank you for your time. This has been enlightening as usual. And uh, again, everyone, I really uh, definitely check out if you need a plant-based cardiologist in Denver, uh, Dr. Freeman is, I'm assuming you can see anyone with their insurance.
0: Me. Yeah, so we're. I, I work at a place called National Jewish Health uh, and you can certainly reach out. We take almost all insurances, we do specialize. And people coming from out of state, I am not licensed outside of Colorado, so I still have to see you in the state, um, but we can certainly have you come in if you're interested. Uh, I'm an academic, so whether you're coming or not, I still get my salary. So uh, not interested in trying to make money off of you. I have yet to put together a supplement to sell. Uh, so I'm really here to uh, try to help people get better in a way that uh, may be less commonly known, so.
1: Yeah, awesome. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you again, and thanks everyone for listening.